This evening, I would like to welcome a special guest, a good friend of mine, Jason McTesh, and he is going to be sharing some stories uh, as a missionary in New Guinea. Got some creepy tales and some interesting facts and just a little of this and a little of that. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So, Jason. Yes. Thank you very much for coming and thank you for having me. Participating on another exciting episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Um, I'll just let you tell a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, to get us kind of a setting and a foundation. Okay. Well, like you said, my name is Jason Mikatish. Uh, I am currently a Department of the Army civilian. I'm a supervisory police officer. Have been working out at Fort Leonard Wood now for 11 years. Uh, prior to that, I was in the Army at Fort Polk. And uh, yeah, that's that's about it. I've been, a, I've been a cop now for 20 years, so it's about all I know how to so do. So you get to see interesting stuff in today's age, and then yeah. we're going to talk about on the podcast some interesting stuff you had in a previous From life a previous almost. Life. That's exactly <laughs> the way to put it, too. Yep. Um, now, I had the opportunity in uh, 1997 to travel to Papua New Guinea. My, my wife and I uh, were able to travel there to, to work as missionaries with her parents. Her parents at this time, now, even today, they've been missionaries there for 50 years. So they were very well established uh, within the Baptist Bible Fellowship International Missions Group. Father-in-law was a bush pilot, so got a chance to see a lot of different villages, got to go to a lot of different places. And... Um, with our goal was the spreading of the gospel. That was our mission, so to speak. But a lot of it actually came down to just trying to survive. Something that he had told me when I first got there, he said, mission work in a, in a bush or in a jungle environment is 70% survival. And wow, it was very yeah. accurate. Uh, just maintaining food for ourselves, water, um, housing, those type of uh, things that we take for granted here. That was 70% of what we had to take care of there. So, so many things we take for granted. Very much so. Yeah. What we what we talked about before we we came in here, let's just kind of start at the beginning, like your first impressions and and the, the first things you saw, things that stood out that immediately like, yeah, I'm not home anymore. Uh, <laughs> not not in Oklahoma, not, not in Oklahoma anymore. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it really, honestly, it's it started when we were flying in to Port Moresby, which is the only major airport for the country. Port Moresby is the capital. So flying in, you could still see all the jungle around it. You could still see all the the rainforest, and then just a city. It was just there. It was in the middle of nothing. There's no major roadways that travel from Port Moresby to the other um, major cities. So everything had to be done by flying. So just to see urban in the middle of all the rural and all the middle of, of the, the rainforest, well, that was that was awe-inspiring. Uh, stepping off the plane, we didn't go through a, uh, a terminal. We didn't go through the, the, the cool unloading. We literally got off the plane and went down the steps and the heat. It was 120 degrees with a oh, 70, wow. 75% humidity. Wow. Being from Oklahoma, used to the heat, not <laughs> used to that. I was that was very uncomfortable. So it hit it hit hard. It ended up hit pretty fast. Now, how big was the plane that you flew in on? Uh, I would I think it was seventy 
70 or so passenger plane. It okay. wasn't very big at all. Okay. Yeah, the last big plane that I had been on was flying into uh, Manila because we flew from LA to Seoul, Korea, to the Manila, Philippines, and then took the little puddle jumper into Port Moresby. <laughs> and little did I know that was going to be actually the largest plane I was going to fly on for a year. The rest of the time we were flying on a little Cessna five seater. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a that was a switch. It was unexpected. <laughs> it was a, the hustle and bustle of a normal city. It didn't look really that much different than what we would see in some of our older cities here in the States, but everything was older. Uh, the cars were 40, 50 years older. The trucks were were ancient. Uh, comment was made earlier about bubblegum and bubble bale and wire exactly. holding the vehicles together. Exactly, and that's <laughs> some of the way it was. Um, they have a bus system that was set up, but it wasn't a bus. It was just a cargo truck, and everybody piled on, and you just held on next to the chickens and the pigs and sheep and everything else that was in there. <laughs> the kind of like the, the movies when the guy's going on the jungle expedition, you see people hanging off the cars and stuff. Oh, hanging on the wood, wood sides of the truck. Yeah. Holding yeah. The animals That's exactly and the way it was and, too. And, the, and they were still driving, you know, 60, 70 miles an hour. I'm like, how in the world? <laughs> so we, we stayed in uh, Port Moresby for a couple of days just to get acclimated because we had to get a smaller flight, like I said, back on that Cessna to get from Port Moresby to where we were going, which is in WOW. W-A-U, pronounced WOW. It's in the um, See, I province. immediately thought of World yeah. of Warcraft. Yes, yes. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So we, I got to see a little bit of the big city. We didn't get to really go out much. We were white skins. That's what we referred to. We were white, we were white people. So we were white skins. And so we stood out in a crowd, and they assumed that every white skin has money. So it was, a, it was a dangerous city, actually, because we have a lot of gang activity. They call them rascals, and it's not safe. It was not safe, even with a, uh, a national being your guide or someone to walk you through. We just didn't do much. So we got to see a little bit so I could say I was there. And then we got to fly into WOW. And uh, that airstrip was, that's all it was, was an airstrip. It was just a cleared field. Uh, flew in there and we had, we had, I don't know, probably 200 people that greeted us. So when the planes were flying in anyways to WOW, there was always people wanting to see what was coming off the planes. Well, now they knew that there was more missionaries coming. So they wanted to see us. It's the first thing, uh, first impression type thing. And uh, we, we were greeted very well. It was very... It was really overwhelming. I didn't expect that. Now, you had mentioned before we were recording out there, too, you had mentioned the, the gangs and the different things and mm-hmm. the, the rascals, as they mm-hmm. were called. Uh, you had mentioned you, you know couldn't have any guns. Correct. Only the government and, and the bad Correct. guys had the, guns. Exactly. And that's, <laughs> the, the police station and, the, and the, uh, the New Guinea Defense Force were the only ones that actually did have weapons. But the police couldn't maintain them because the rascals were constantly breaking into the police stations and taking the guns. So if you saw a cop with a gun, it was very, very surprising. Very, very uncommon. Plenty of rascals running around with their guns, but they Again, didn't have didn't, any. Didn't so. give that safe vibe at no, all. No, I did not, not feel not comfortable at all. At all. Yeah. So, so um, we got settled in and immediately we started started going to work. We were trying to re-roof a church. So I'm three days in at this point and we're going to re-roof a church. I stepped wrong, realized I am not a roofer very quickly. <laughs> Step wrong, I fell uh, 13 feet. Land on my back on solid concrete between two tropical hardwood pews. Oof. I broke a four by four on the way down with my head. So, wow. uh, two cracked ribs, three compressed vertebrae, and uh, a concussion. It Welcome was great. to New Guinea. Welcome to New Guinea. Now, okay, as far as medical treatment, medical care it was. Uh, <laughs> we were the medical care. That oh, was the okay. problem. How'd okay. that go? <laughs> exactly. That was the problem. Uh, my mother in law, she was a registered nurse. Uh, so that helped. So she was able to uh, take care of a lot of our medical issues and, and, and help with that. She serves as our medical missionary. But for me, I ended up having to go to Lay, which is the second largest city, and I got x-rays. 
Yeah, I've never been more scared to get an x-ray <laughs> in my life. I'm pretty sure I got radiation poisoning right then and there. Wow. And the quality, it was just amazing. Uh, they were 50, easily 50 years behind us in their technology. Yeah. So uh, it was a walk-in x-ray, but it did not look anything like what I ever something out of an old sci-fi movie it was or it truly was <laughs> frankenstein yes, it lives I, I was impressed that they could figure out that i had three compressed vertebrae because i'm looking at it i couldn't tell anything on there it was so blurry it was, it was like horrible. one of the old black and white tvs you're tapping oh, on trying to get better bad. reception <laughs> well the one of the the big thing and an emotional thing for us is uh my wife was seven months pregnant at the time and they thought i was dead so mm -hmm. immediately, I, I didn't understand them at the time. I know what they were saying now, uh, having learned the language, is that uh, Manny Pundani died. Well, the man fell and he died. So my seven-month pregnant wife thought I was dead three days into the country. I'm like, oh, this is going to go well. Wow. This is going to go great. Yeah. Now, you mentioned they had several languages that they speak in they the They do. They do. Um, I had the opportunity. It took me about six months to learn the main language, the main train language, because they have, they have three actual main languages that are used. There's English. There's Pidgin or Tokbizen, and then there's Motu. Motu would be sort of the upper echelon, the kind of the upper crest of people. You know, they're the, the high, say, society. Uppity, high society, uppity ups. Uh, English is the language that's taught in schools, um, but Pidgin is the trade language. But there's still almost, a, right at, I think, 100, or, excuse me, 820 still used languages to this day, and some of them have died off. Now, there's only 8 million people in the country, uh, so you're looking at, a thousand people maybe speaking one language. Wow. Because there's so many different tribes and they're so isolated. Uh, there's very little bleed over. So uh, I had several opportunities to go and speak with people, but I had to have a translator from English to Pidgin and then Pidgin to the native language of that particular village. So speaking through a translator is bad. Speaking through two translators <laughs> is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, 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 that proved to be a challenge, but it, it did take me about six months so I can I could comfortably read and write. And, and speak the language. So I was able to translate my own stuff. So that was very helpful. So you got some uh, baling wire and bubble gum to hold you together. Yeah, basically, and, yes. Uh, kicked back out of the hospital and yeah. to um, back to work in yeah. just a few days, I assume? Or? Well, yeah, because really the work doesn't stop. It goes back to that 70% 70, you know, 70 survival. And then uh, one of the great things I get to carry with me, or got to carry with me for a long part of my life, was malaria. Malaria has a 21-day incubation period. <laughs> it's a period. gift that keeps on giving. It is. And 21 days after I was there, I contracted my first symptom of malaria. So I'm pretty sure the mosquito was waiting for me as soon as I got off the plane. So that's just bad me. luck. <laughs> that's, that's a country that's trying to kill you. It is a country trying to kill me. That's right. <laughs> but I, we got to do a lot. Uh, the, the property that we were actually on was actually a Bible college. So there was Bible college students there. So I got to do a lot of helping with them. Since I didn't know the language at first, it was difficult for me to get too involved. Um, so I made it a goal. I made it a goal. Um, and before it was over, I was actually teaching classes myself, teaching college classes myself in the language. And I was translating it, everything on my own. So I had the schoolwork, so to speak, and I had an English, so I'm translating it, translating it into pigeon so that I could teach the students. And then I have a pigeon Bible and an English Bible so that I can make sure that I'm getting everything straight. Dotting um, all your I's and crossing really, your T's the it, best you can. The best I could. And they were very forgiving. They were very understanding. And the nice thing is they wanted to learn English as much as I wanted to learn Pigeon. So that was very helpful. Now, what were your living? Living conditions. Conditions. Okay. Yeah. What, what kind of paint the picture? We were fortunate enough. We didn't have to live in a, in a bamboo hut. But the house that we stayed in literally was a bed, a bathroom, and a little kitchen area. So it's honestly about, about the size, size of the room that we're in right now. The room we're using for yeah. recording. It wasn't very big at all. Now, the, the master's house, 
because this is uh, this country was very much into Australian and, and British rule, so they still had the master and the missus and this those type of things. So the master's house was a, it was a, a normal size house, a, a decent looking house, something probably was at the time was probably made in the forties, late late forties, early fifties, right after the war. Right. So that was nice. Uh, we had electricity. Running water was actually a difficult thing for us because the only water we had was actually rainwater that we collected off the roofs, tin roofs, and a gutter system and roll into tanks through a filtration system. So when it rains, we had fresh water. If it didn't rain, we didn't. Obviously, no air conditioning. I assume you had fans? We had to have fans. Okay. Yeah, we were able to have electricity. Air conditioning was not a... Didn't have to worry thing. about heat. Oh, no. The heat was never a problem. <laughs> that came but, as a natural. Well, it, got, it did get cold in the evenings. It did get cold. But, yeah, that's, their definition of cold and our definition of cold are totally two different <laughs> things. things. Yeah. Well, I guess it's subjective, you know, if it's it is. 100 and some odd degrees, you know, 70 might be cold, oh, but oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, <Where? laughs> yeah. From, uh, seriously, from probably around 11 to around two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon, we didn't do anything. It was just too hot. It's unbearable. And then again, you add the humidity to it. Yeah. There's no coming back. Now, from that, you so. had mentioned, and, and I personally, I didn't know a lot about New Guinea at all. Uh, so I'm, I'm literally learning here along mm. with the audience, but, uh, I assume you had a few creepy crawlies that maybe came into the house and <laughs> yeah. maybe beds. and Yeah, we did. Uh, Actually, we did. We got I have plenty of stories. The most annoying thing, honestly, the most annoying thing we had creepy crawlies were geckos. Geckos got everywhere. Trying to sell that insurance. They were, I'm telling you, for 75 <laughs> years now, I think is what they say. Yep. That actually, they they were just a nuisance animal. It's not like they'd get in and, you know, destroy anything. Like, because they were literally just trying to eat the bugs and the mosquitoes, which was fine with me. Because I'm trying to keep that malaria down to as minimum as possible. <laughs> But they were everywhere. So you'd be in the shower, they'd fall off the the ceiling and land on your shoulder, <laughs> land in your hair, and they don't bounce. And so you're constantly cleaning up dead geckos. <laughs> that was the most annoying thing. That was just an annoyance. But it was it was unusual. Um, bugs, uh, bugs were absolutely um, out of this world. Uh, I've used the term, and I use it with you all. I use it again. It's, it's this National Geographic Live. So the bugs that were there were huge. <laughs> When a walking stick that we see here, you know, little stick bugs, stick insects, you know, two, three inches long and skinny, that ain't nothing to have a, an eight inch long, one inch width walking stick walking around. Yeah. That's a walking branch. And, yeah. and I've said that for a long time. I'm going to continue to say it. Were there like scorpions? I know you said there, there were, were snakes. There spiders. were some scorpions. We didn't have to deal with as many as where we were at. Um, but there were places that they had the big black, almost looked like the Egyptian style scorpions. They were big and big like that. Small pinchers potent tails right um snakes some of the most dangerous snakes in the world were there uh papuan black member of the taipan family constantly were there and not trying to upset anybody when i say this but i made it a goal to try to eliminate at least one snake <laughs> as i possibly can because they were everywhere we couldn't go into the couldn't go around our houses without worrying about snakes you couldn't you don't dare take the trash out at night yeah now before we we started you were you were telling us a little story about Going to a hotel. Oh yes. If you wanna? Yeah, like I did. Yes, I did. That that was a trip. Um, several months into it, I had the opportunity to go to be a speaker uh, for an event at a church, and so they put me into a hotel. My wife and uh, I think my daughter was maybe only eight months old, so we're looking about eight months in. And uh, this was a four star hotel by their standards. It might have been a half a star by ours, maybe, <laughs> maybe. I mean, their outline of the star, something. It wasn't a full day. Uh, it's just it was literally just two beds, a toilet, a sink and a concrete slab floor. So I flicked the light on, fortunately for electricity, and I saw a black something run underneath. A blur. Yeah, <laughs> go underneath the, the uh, one of the beds. Yeah, so I got my torch or the flashlight. I call it a torch. I got my flashlight and looked underneath. Yeah, it was a big big black, Papuan black snake. 
I'm like, this is where I'm supposed to be staying the night. This is great. <laughs> so I'll go out and find uh, the equivalent of their maintenance man, tell him about it. Of course, he brings uh, himself and then two other people, and they bring their big bush knives. And again, this is one of the most poisonous snakes. This is snakes one of the most dangerous snakes in the yeah. beginning, yes. Yeah. And it's just curled up, ticked off at me and everybody else. Waiting for you to go to bed. Yeah. Oh, it's just waiting. <laughs> um, so they've got, uh, they end up getting a stick of some sort and getting it moved out from underneath the bed and they just hacked it into three pieces, which is great. It was dead. I'm very thankful. <laughs> Yay. But then they left it. <laughs> they thought I needed it, ever wanted it. I, I had no desire <laughs> to keep this thing. So there's three pieces of snake literally writhing around on the floor blood flirting and they just left is that your uh, continental breakfast i guess yeah, yeah. yeah something like that <laughs> yeah free meal <laughs> you cook pineapple <laughs> steak here you go you got this yeah it, it, it was unbelievable the opportunity once in a lifetime uh, i'm glad i had the opportunity to do it but just seeing the day-to-day life was it was overwhelming now one of the things we talked about a little bit was some of their tribal masks uh some yeah. of the beautiful artwork and, and stuff but there was kind of a uh, a little more sinister story behind the mask that I thought was very peculiar. That's and that's a really good way to put it. Very artistic people, uh, very very good uh, with their hands, good at carvings, good at uh, making artwork and things like that. And they love to sell to tourists. So they would spend a week or two weeks carving a mask out of balsa wood, and it could be anything from you know, ten twelve inches to three or four feet in height, uh, you know, two three feet in width. And they would carve it, and they looked amazing. They'd had shell work and bead work and different things of that nature for decoration purposes. But what you had to be careful of is a lot of these people would put, uh, for lack of a better term, a curse into it uh, or a spirit. And the reason why they would do that is they wanted you to take their spirit home with you. They wanted you to take their demon or their part of their religion, their mysticism, home with you. So, um, like I alluded to before, uh, churches here in the States, you know, they'll give you a little pamphlet or a little track or a little booklet or something to read so that you can get to know a little bit. And well, no, they just give you the whole kit and caboodle and give you a demon to take home. So uh, we had to be very careful in what we purchased for ourselves for our home because I wanted stuff for the decorations of the house because this is just the coolest thing in the world. Well, you were showing me some so, of those. The, the, the artwork is it's amazing. It's phenomenal. Beautiful. It's beautiful. phenomenal. Um, we did have a mask that we thought was safe and we had it up, hung up in the hallway and well, we'd walk down the hallway, and this thing would come off the hook and up and just fall on the floor, try to hit you. It felt like it. I'm pretty sure that's what really what it was, and because it was possessed. And again, you were you were describing to, to Bill and I, it wasn't like the nail had dropped or anything. The nail Correct. was at an angle, was at pointed an angle to towards the ceiling, and Correct. the mask is hung. So when he says it would have to lift up, I mean, literally, it would have to have lift to. up off the yeah. nail, you know. Yeah, and there's no there's no other possible kind of explanation gravity. for it. Exactly. And so we didn't keep that for very long. We did end up burning that one pretty quick. We got that one out because, you know, first time, uh, maybe that's just weird. You know, it's no big deal. <laughs> Second time, well, now we got a problem. Yeah. yeah. And third time it was burnt. So. Now, uh, as a missionary over there and, mm-hmm. and someone from America, like you said, they called you, you know, white skin. Mm-hmm. And, no, so how did they they react to you and and you your efforts to to spread the word? Okay, that's a good question. It's a really good question, actually. Um, the 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 people in the towns that we were the established towns that we we're in were were generally pretty acceptive, uh, accepting of us. A lot of it is because we did bring things. We had food. We had medical supplies. We had money. So they were okay with that. Now you get off the off of the reservation, for better term, you get out of that area for a little bit, and then you start running into the tribal. Um, religions the tribal people and they're still hundreds of years behind us i mean if they had a shirt that was the greatest thing that they've ever had because if we didn't see anybody with shirt we didn't see anybody with shoes we didn't you know none of those things so very traditional 
So they were not very accepting of us because we were preaching and teaching against their demons and their gods. So uh, one of the things that fascinated me coming from Oklahoma, of course, I learned Oklahoma history was a lot of the Native American history. And to see the correlation between the Native American history and Native American religions uh, and beliefs as what the uh, New Guineans had, there's obviously no way that Native Americans were ever and vice versa, but they still had some of the same beliefs and the same views. So uh, they would have what Native American culture would call it a powwow. They called it a sing-sing, wearing their traditional gear, their traditional clothing. And um, they would light the big bonfire and they would dance around it. They'd beat their drums, uh, the kundu drums, what they're called. Uh, Large drums? Some of them were larger than others. Some of them were not. Um, A lot of them were able to be carried by one hand and played with the other. Or some of them would actually strap it up with some sort of uh, uh, leather or twine, hemp, something along those lines. So they could actually wear it on themselves Mm -hmm. so they could still play with both hands. The interesting thing about that is traditionally a kundu drum was actually made with human skin as the... The, the leather, I guess, that you would actually yeah. play. I don't know what it's I'm called. I'm not sure what the proper term is. There is, is a proper term. Yeah. I'm not sure what it is. But yeah. that would actually be, and then they would seal it um, with either snake or lizard blood to be able to keep it on there. Now, cannibalism and uh, human sacrifice and those type of things, if you ask the government, they haven't been there in, you know since the 70s. It was still very much there. So they would, anyways, they would play their kundu drums. They would call upon their demons and their spirits. And we actually had an incident with that uh, just off of our property. We had 40 acres of property, and I could hear it coming. I knew it was coming. It was a dark, clear night, and we heard the drums beating, and we knew what that was for. That was to scare us off. And what they were doing is they were calling their demons, their, their gods, to come and torment us. And it was an eerie sound because you could hear the beating of the drums. You could see in the distance the flames, and you knew exactly what they're doing. They're trying to strike out to you. They're trying to the whole psychological warfare is exactly what it was. So we knew it was coming. We could hear the chanting, couldn't understand what they were saying, probably for the better. And um, we just literally say prayer, go to bed because there's nothing else you can do. I've had two nightmares my entire life, one when I was seven and one when I was 20. And that was that night. Uh, I had probably the worst nightmare I've ever uh, possible. It was it was scary. It was demonic. Every part of it. When I did wake up. The bed was completely soaked with sweat to the, down to the mattress. And my daughter, who was about three months old, still wearing a onesie, she still had socks on her hands to keep her from scratching her face and whatever, wearing a onesie, she was scratched from head to toe underneath that onesie. Oh, wow. Whoa. She had scratch marks. And there's no way, that, no way that she did it to herself. It was pure demonic spiritual warfare. And I have never been as tired as I was after that. That scared me. I mean, that really, truly scared me. And that was, we found out a couple of days later, yeah, they were trying to run us out. Uh, we were the new people there. They couldn't, they hadn't gotten rid of my in-laws, so they were going to try to get rid of us. And they almost did. That was pretty, hey, uh, Obviously, you're calling them demons. Is that what they called them as well, or did they have different they names? They had different names for it. Um, everything has a spirit. The trees have a spirit. Snakes have a spirit. The crocodiles have a spirit. Everything has a spirit. And I, I guess that's part of the language that I just didn't learn didn't need to learn right the less right. the less i dived into it the better yeah um yeah offhand I, I couldn't tell you what it was i just know that the, the witch doctor we'll call him witch doctor was sanguma or sanguma man sanguma man was the witch doctor sanguma was the man that uh, was what he was practicing uh that's the ones that we were afraid of because they they devoted themselves completely to the demons and they were going to do everything they could now, in your travels and your research, you would relate this. I, I believe you use the word like close to voodoo type. Correct. Uh, yeah, okay. voodoo or hoodoo, something along those lines. Okay. Um, they they very much in going into trances. They would self medicate, for lack of a better term. They would consume whatever drugs that they possibly can. 
get themselves high, get themselves drunk, and go into the trance and spiritual states. And yeah, put curses on things. When the Sing Sing did not work like they thought it would, they actually started sending out dogs. And uh, it's kind of a weird thing because dogs are completely wild. We, we, we have domesticated dogs here in the States, and we pet them and, and we love on them and all this kind of stuff. The dogs there are the lowest of the low. Um, but would not uncommon for them to try to put a spirit or a demon into the dog to send it out to spy or attack. And I'd heard it, never seen it until I would go out to take out the trash one night and I see a dog, I don't know, a little bit smaller than a German shepherd, uh, staring back at me and had the brightest, reddest, flaming red eyes I've ever seen in my life. Right out of a horror movie. Straight out of Pet Cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. I had never seen the movie Pet Cemetery until I came back to the States. I had to turn it off. I couldn't watch Whoa, it. Whoa, I've saw this before. I've seen this in real life. I'm done. <laughs> um, and it, 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 it started only coming around whenever my father-in-law and I were not there because we had machetes. I had learned how to use a straight bow because there's no guns, and it knew whenever we were there. So I, I know there was some demonic activity going on with because there's just no chance of it being anything other than that. And we did have to reach out to people and... People reach out to people, and you know, two, three weeks later, it finally the message finally gets through, and we didn't see the dog anymore, which is good because that that scared me. Wow, it was now. Did the sing sings, the drumming and stuff, did that just continue, or was that just one night in an attempt that they they thought failed, so then they dialed it up? That's a bit? pretty much. Yeah, that's exactly what, what they would have. We could hear sing sings throughout the throughout the valley because of where we were at, because of, of what it was. But that was the only one I think that was actually directed towards us. Gotcha. Um, they, they were specifically targeting us but i've been to sing sings before where it was not demonic and it was just straight like a powwow trying to show their culture and and, and to just live a little bit and it, they're amazingly beautiful to watch the paint that they use is all natural paints that they're, they're using uh, the bird feathers they're using the, the tree kangaroo uh, pelts and absolutely gorgeous people uh and what they did but it's whenever they dialed it up like you said uh that's whenever it's straight demonic not anything to be a part of now you mentioned tree kangaroo. Some yeah. of our listeners may not be familiar with it. With literally, that term. is a tree kangaroo. It's it's actually a family of the opossum. They they call it a tree kangaroo. Softest fur I've ever felt on a on a on a, on a mammal. It was amazing. It was it's like one of those really like a nice mink sweater. Kind of feel. It, yeah, it was amazing. Um, but they get up, you know, 10, 10 or twelve pounds, uh, and they would skin them and they would use them for headbands. They use them for their bags. They use them for straight decoration. Beautiful creatures. And of course, nothing goes to waste. So they would eat them. It, very, very talented people, very artistic, and they were able to incorporate everything that they had around them. Because it's not like they can run to Hobby Lobby right. and, and purchase whatever <laughs> items they might need. Um, so they were creating their own. It was it's straight historical. Again, straight out of, out of National Geographic. Loved every second of that part of it. Well, we were talking about dangerous animals, and you mentioned the uh, cassowary. The cassowary, yes. That's actually one of the uh, one of the most vile creatures and ticked off creatures there is. There, if yeah, it's about the size of an emu, but the kicker with the cassowary is they're very aggressive and they have a very large talon on their foot uh, and they have a very strong kick. So when they kick, they actually will eviscerate someone. And having seen that, I yeah, yeah you actually overwhelming. you unfortunately got to witness someone that had been Correct. attacked by one over there. Yeah, and they're aggressive. They'll go after you. If there's not, you know, if you leave it alone, it'll leave you alone. No, it saw you. It hates you. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, we had a, a gentleman that they brought to us that they thought we could help. We thought my mother-in-law would be able to help, and was there was no saving. There was just nothing we could do. The uh, the closest house sick doctor's office, house sick is a doctor's office, was a 30-minute drive or a five-minute flight. 
And once you get there, you're still just dealing with a board certified from New Guinea nurse. We might call them a medic here, a paramedic maybe. That'd be about the extent of gotcha. it. So there was no coming back from that castle. Yeah. There, there was nothing. Wow. Scary creatures. Jurassic Park style right there. Now, you had also yeah. mentioned uh, some um, overhead yes. uh, creatures I, I, I that did. you even partook of. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I did. We had uh, several, of course, it's a rainforest, um, so you have a lot of uh, hardwood, tropical hardwoods and rainforest, but we also had some pine trees, which did not fit in with the rest of the jungle. I still don't understand how hey, that happened. You mentioned pine trees. It like, really is like what it was. We have here in Missouri. Yeah, it was like pine what? needles. It was, I don't understand it. I don't, I don't understand how it got there. Been there forever and a day, tall as all get, get out. But they had bats that were roosting up in those trees, and they were loud, annoyingly loud. Like, oh, and these I don't know how to small, describe these it. Weren't small no, bats and these either. bats are not the little bats that you see that are so cute and adorable that everybody loves and what have you. No, these are uh, fruit bats. So they're flying foxes. So they have about a six foot wingspan. So they weigh like, up to five, six pounds, I think, total. Uh, big leathery wings, beautiful creatures. And they, they earned the term flying fox because they look like a fox. Gorgeous. Well, those things got to be a little overwhelming. So uh, a friend of ours here in the States sent us uh, a bunch of slingshots with the rubbers. And we went and bought a bunch of marbles from the local store. And we were just launching marbles into the tree, just hoping to hit one. <laughs> well, I did hit one. Didn't realize it. I hit one. I broke its wing. It fell. And that night, I actually got a knock on the door, opened the door, and there's a six-foot wingspan bat in my face. Because <laughs> the guy is holding it out, arms, you know, his arms with the, in front of him, and this bat is ticked avon calling yeah exactly I, I, not the girl scout cookies i ordered um and it was just ticked off well uh because they don't waste anything they skinned it cooked over open fire and that's what i had for breakfast the next morning it's like mm. a beef jerky bacon i would gladly eat it again to this day i was gonna say i would eat it again yeah. i really seriously would it was really that good and i don't know anybody else can say they've done it but that's not awesome <laughs> right so <laughs> So on, on the topic of, of flying creatures like that, you, you said your, your father-in-law was involved in an expedition? Correct, he was. And it's, you brought up Jurassic Park, and we talk about flying things. Um, there had been reports for decades of, uh, of a pterodon or a pterodactyl. New Guinea doesn't exactly have the World Wide Web, so it's not like they're jumping on to, to look up what things are. They're, it's hard for them to make things up that they've never seen and be accurate, and they were very accurate. We had several scientists that came over. And where they hired my father-in-law to take him on an expedition. So he went on two expeditions to track down a pterodactyl. Because he was a bush pilot. He was so a he, pilot. Was, he was so flying them. Yeah, he could fly them just about anywhere there was to go and all their gear. And um, these pterodons or pterodactyls, depending on the term, I'm not a scientist by any means, they lived in the cave. So they would actually start getting some of the fungus growing on their belly. So they'd actually start to glow a little bit in the dark so the natives could actually see them flying so they knew that they were there. So through the university in Port Moresby, they got a hold of Australians and some British and uh, different scientists, and they came down. And they actually were able to trap or catch with a Kevlar net a, uh, a pterodon. and 15-foot wingspan A 15-foot wingspan-ish, yeah. It's kind of hard to, to measure. And it's one of those stories that if anybody other than my father-in-law had told me about it, I wouldn't have believed it. But this is a man of God. This is a man of integrity. This is a man that I trusted completely. And he told me, yeah, that thing shredded the net and it was gone. So it's it's not hard. You can pull up Google and you can look and see the, the photos. There's not a lot of cameras in New Guinea. There's not a lot of film developing going on by Kodak. So the ones that are seen there are seen by the Australians or 
tourists and things of that nature. So it's not something they've made up. Yeah, we we did an episode about modern dinosaur sightings, so that's definitely yeah. right up our alley definitely. here. Didn't even know that until today when we were talking with yeah. Jason mm-hmm. before we come here to the recording uh, room. Very interesting. I did have an opportunity to speak with a uh, creation scientist, and there, there, you know, of course, from from, from a Christ, Christian's perspective, from a biblical perspective, uh, talking about uh, the flood, Noah's flood. Uh, we've, we've all heard the, the Bible story of mm-hmm. Noah's flood at some point in time. Um, there had never been rain before. The the world was perfect as far as the the ground, the earth, and the sky and stuff like that. And they, the creation scientist, he believes that New Guinea is one of the closest places to what the world was like pre-flood. Um, because it's set, where we were at was seven degrees below the equator. So you've got the constant heat, you got the constant humidity, you got the constant warmth, everything that you would need for a rainforest. And so it actually would be the closest thing to pre-flood days. And I'm of the persuasion if it was pre-flood, that's probably when the dinosaurs were too. So why not? Yeah. If, if they're yeah. untouched, most of that island is still untouched. There are still hundreds and hundreds of tribes that are completely undocumented, have no contact with any white skin <laughs> or anybody from uh, outside of, the, of New Guinea. So I, anything's possible. I really, truly believe And again, possible. with the location, with the equator and everything, maybe that made a perfect bubble and, and somehow, possible. you know, they survived. Because that was a topic we got into and discussed is, you know, how could a dinosaur survive? And, you know, we've we've covered several of them from North Carolina to, to Texas and different ones. And some of them are a little bit of a stretch to believe, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with your accord on that. I, that, I really sincerely that believe one, it. That one could make more sense than any. Well, we have, um, you know, crocodiles are one of the closest relatives that we have this day and age of dinosaurs and they have 20 foot saltwater crocodiles. They're like nothing. Now there so, was another story you were telling us about uh, a crocodile skin. I believe that you were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. And it actually goes back to even to, uh, to when we're talking about the carvings and such too. I wanted a crocodile skin because I, I just, the whole idea of having a crocodile skin, you know, crocodile Dundee and all that good stuff, you know, close to Australia. And I probably should have said that for those that don't know where New Guinea is, is the Island nation above Australia. So they'll refer to it as the dragon uh, sometimes. So half of it is Indonesia and half of it's Papua New Guinea. So it's the it's the third largest island in the world. Get it back on track. I apologize. Huh? So I, I really wanted a crocodile skin. So I pushed out, hey, can we find this? One of the tribes there is the Sepik tribe. And uh, if you've turned on any sort of documentary in the rainforest or the jungles and people, the Sepik tribe is actually pretty well known. And they're well known for worshiping crocodiles as gods to the point where they actually would scar their backs. They would take a knife, cut jagged edges into their back, rub soot on it, and let it fester and heal and scar up. And it um, simulates a crocodile skin. Exactly. Yeah. So it get the roughness. So that's part of their trip to manhood. That's how you show that you're a man in that particular tribe is to get that on there and your dedication to the crocodile. So I thought that would be an amazing skin to have. So I pushed out, hey, I want to get a crocodile skin. So I told one person. You just told pulled one. up your cell phone. Oh, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> of course. Just yeah, I just sent that out yeah, there just, and uh, TikToked and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the communication, because there's none of that type of stuff, it literally is all mouth to mouth. And a person might have to walk four or five miles to be able to tell one person. And then he has to walk four or five miles to tell five more people and then spread out. So it took about three weeks. And I had a herd of people come walking down our, walking down our street. No idea who these people were. Well, I thought maybe they had found me a crocodile skin. No, they brought me carvings, which immediately sent up red flags because I didn't know who any of these people were. They brought me snakes. They brought me a hedgehog thing. They brought me everything but what I needed, which was a crocodile skin. But they were trying to do whatever they could to help the white skin. Again, the white skin's got money. I did not have money. Let's put that out there right now. I did not. Persona. Exactly. So they were trying, but they, bless their hearts. Those people walked barefoot like 400 miles to bring you that (laughs) snake and that hedgehog. It might have been 20, 30 miles. That's possible. 
But yeah, they bought the me a black python. Cranky white skin turned them oh, down. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, because they needed a couple of Kina or dollars. But you did I did actually did. I actually did a skin. Uh, there was a... Uh, New Guinea has got a lot of natural resources. They've got, uh, of course, it's a rainforest, so timber is their primary. There's a lot of gold, a lot of silver. Coffee is, a, is another one. Uh, big plug, if you ever have a chance to buy Blue Mountain coffee, mm. buy it and have a cup of that. It's worth it. It's expensive, but it's worth it. I've been in the fields where those things has grown. Oh, totally wow. agree. But a lot of what they also do is they'll have crocodile farms. So I did have the opportunity to go to Lay, L-A-E, and uh, visit a crocodile farm there owned by Australians. And I watched... I watched a national walking barefoot around a enclosure of, I don't know, maybe 100 to 200 crocodiles, and he's feeding them chicken, raw chicken. Wow. There was a chicken farm next to the place, and whatever they couldn't use to sell, they would give to the crocodile <laughs> farm because they use everything. Right. And right. that's how they feed their crocodiles. So this guy's walking barefoot around these things in shorts and no shirt. He had a lot of scars on him. He'd been attacked a lot, and he's still doing it, so kudos to him. But I actually was able to buy a skin, uh, and it's it's jet black. It was tanned. It was meant to be made into a belt or wallet. Or I don't know what it's supposed to be. But I paid 100 kina, so 50 American dollars. And when I got back home to the States, looked it up as a $3,000 skin for 50 bucks. I did okay. Good deal. I did <laughs> okay. So uh, you were you were talking before we got started about trekking out to meet one of those isolated uh, tribes. Yes. yes. Um, not a lot of roads. And the roads that you're on, you don't even feel like you're on a road most of the time. <laughs> so we took about a two, two and a half hour uh, trek through a tr- with a truck, uh, t- basically till the road ended, literally till the road ended. And then we walked five, six hours through uh, the jungle, through a footpath. We still were hacking away with machetes. We were still clearing a path to get through there, get cut up. Uh, kunai grass, that's what's called razor grass. And it literally will cut your skin. So I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt in 120 degree, 120 degree heat just so I don't get cut to ribbons by the kunai grass. Straight out of National Geographic. Love every minute of that. Um, yeah, so we walked. We crossed the same river on this mountain. We crossed, I, I think, I was it 17 times? I can't remember what I wow. said. I think it was 17 times we crossed the same river. It zigzagged a little bit. And uh, <laughs> we were going up. We got to the village. Uh, I'm the only white skin. Uh, I'm the only native uh, English speaker. Uh, so none of the rest 12. of your group went with you on this trip? No, correct. It was just me. Just you? Well, just me and then some of the students that were there and some of the other villagers. So, I mean, it's all nationals. Okay. So there was, uh, there was nine so of us. What you're saying is you kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. I definitely <laughs> stood out. Okay. I okay. was noticeable. Um, really noticeable when we got through the clearing and it it was just like a movie. You, know, you get through the hard jungle and then it opened up and there's it was just like that. And I would say that every kid under the age of 12 ran away from me. They were scared because they thought I was a spirit coming out of the jungle. They had never seen a white person before. So their parents are literally having to drag them to me to touch my hand, touch my skin, something to see that I was a real human being. I just was white. Right. Wow. That was an amazing experience. I got to stay in a thatched hut. Thatched hut. <laughs> and um, oh, we, I mean, they saw the fire going you know, the whole time, going out the ceiling. The running water actually came down from the top of the mountain. So what they had done was run bamboo piping from where that same river I crossed 17 times basically was at the top of. And they created pipes for having running water. Cleanest, coldest running water you could possibly have. Crispest, crispiest, tastiest water possible. Then you go and take a, you know, you take your, take your bath in the river. And <laughs> that was five days of fun. I got a chance to speak there. And it, it was a welcoming, a welcoming community. So I didn't have to worry about the demonic side of things. I didn't have to worry about the things and that kind of stuff. These people knew we were coming. They were expecting it. Uh, I was blessed to be the guest of honor which was great. That was an awesome honor. It was nice for me. Nice compliment. And what they had done is they had went and hunted down a wild pig 
and then they did a muumuu with it as well. A muumuu is sort of what the uh, Hawaiians would do for digging a pit, filling mm, it with okay. rocks, filling gotcha. a pig in it, covering it up with banana leaves, uh, sweet potato or cow cow is what it's called, and uh, bananas and all this kind of stuff. And they cooked that for 8, 10, 12 hours, and that's what we had. So as the guest of honor, I got to eat the guest of honor uh, meal. They brought me the head. Mm. Yeah, it was still looking at me. <laughs> so I, I, I quickly <laughs> yielded my guest of honor to another gentleman that was there and played it off that he was the he was the reason why I was there. <laughs> he was all too willing to accept it, and I watched him eat out of this pig happily. Mm. I ate a leg. I was quite good. So, <laughs> so what other kind of interesting foods, foods. Uh, drinks, possibly uh, any of that that that. That you were exposed to. Exposed? To, well, water, of course, was anything that we could get a hold of. We were fortunate enough, Pepsi, believe it or not, nectar of the gods. We were actually able to get a, a flat of Pepsi every once in a while. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't I, agree I, was, more. I, was, I was ecstatic with that. And no, Pepsi is not sponsoring this <laughs> show. So. Yeah, good point. <laughs> no, um, a lot of sweet potatoes. Sweet potato was the, the main staple food for them, so it was a lot of sweet potatoes. You can only fix sweet potatoes so many times in so many different ways. <laughs> Uh, we ate a lot of rice. Rice, uh, we buy 50, get 50 pound bags of rice, you know, five, six bags at a time. And that was, that would be our staple. Uh, if we were fortunate enough, we could get grass fed beef from some of the areas. Some of the, uh, a lot of pig, a lot of sheep, lamb. You'd mentioned crocodile. Is crocodile I, something that would I, normally Not be normally. Eaten? No, not normally. I mean, I, I suppose some of the people. I guess because some of the tribes worship them, the people, obviously. Yeah, exactly. So I could, I could see that'd be a problem. Uh, we were able to get some from that same crocodile farm, actually. So I was able to have saltwater crocodile. And yes, it does taste like chicken. Yeah, I've actually had it as well. So it's there you good. go. It's pretty good. A little honey butter sauce on it. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. Good stuff. And we and tin fish. Uh, it's called tin fish. It's basically sardines in a can. But because there's no copywriting, there's no protection of anything. <laughs> they may it may be sardines one day. It may be minnows the next. Who knows what you're going to get? It's all going to be labeled the same. But thought so. We, we had a lot of that. And, and fortunately, we had care packages that were sent to us. I mean, we got our own pizza at one point in time. So. Did have the opportunity to eat a, uh, a rhinoceros beetle, which Ooh. that's about two and a half, three inches long, about an inch and a half wide. Take the, uh, take a coconut tree leaf, peel off the leafing so you just have just the spine. You run that through the beetle and then you roast it over a fire and you eat it like popcorn, corn on the cob. I don't know what you call corn it. Corn cob, I would popcorn, never, marshmallow. One, marshmallow, yeah, I guess that's basically <laughs> how you go. I would not recommend. 10 out of 10 would not recommend. <laughs> I recommend that. A half star? Uh, yeah, half star. <laughs> I mean, if you're hungry enough, right? I suppose. Yeah. Again, 70%, 70% survival. Uh, one of the things that we, we dealt with that didn't expect to have problems with, but we did. In a rainforest, you expect over 300 plus inches of rain a year. Uh, we were th three months in and we didn't have any rain. We didn't have rain for the first eight to nine months that we were there. Yeah, about first nine months we were there. There was a mountain that wasn't too far off in the distance that we could see clearly. And it was beautiful and all that. And then when it started not raining, the uh, the tribes that were between us and that mountain started burning the rainforest. They burned the rainforest to try to appease the gods to send rain. They figured the smoke would go up and make gods cry, sneeze, bless them. I'm not sure how they... Get their they, attention. Get their attention yeah. is really what it was. Hey, and they we're, we're still looking, down here. That's what it was. Exactly. <laughs> we're trying to appease them, let them know they're still there. So it got so bad, we couldn't even see the mountain anymore. I mean, this is an 8, 8 to 10,000 foot mountain, and we couldn't see it anymore because the smoke was so bad. Wow. And that started to get a little, little scary because we had to start worrying about getting an exit strategy. Uh, you can do a little bit, you can do, you can do a lot of stuff with rice. You can do a lot of stuff with tin fish, uh, things like that. But with no water, you can't do a lot. So we started having to draw water from the river in big barrels to flush our toilets. 
obviously we couldn't drink that water. There's no boiling that off. You can't do it. Um, so we actually had to start making uh, exit plans about nine months in of whether or not we were able to stay in the country way of sustaining. Um, but the rains did come. And then they came, and they came, and they came. <laughs> I think we made up for a lot of that 300 inches within three days. So we, we got a lot of rain, uh, which then caused a lot of problems because then you have a lot of eroding, of flooding. So we lost people that way. But the na- the natives, the national that, that were doing all the burning, they thought, oh, see, this is how it works. It works. And so w- the next time there's a drought, they're going to do the exact same thing. They're going to burn off acres, hundreds and hundreds of acres of, of rainforest to try to appease the gods because it worked once. So it's got to work again. Yeah. And we were talking about. I'm about food, uh, food stuffs there and strange foods, and you mentioned uh, cannibalism earlier. Yes. Did you? Uh, Do you ever have any knowing run-in with cannibals? <laughs> I, I like to say that I've had dinner with cannibals. I have had dinner with cannibals. Uh, I went to a village, Yeva, on the side of a mountain, literally on the side of a mountain. There's an airstrip, and, and I say that I ate with cannibals. This the the, the people that I actually were with was one generation separated from cannibals. One generation, whenever your lifespan is only 65, is yeah. not a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, their lifespan is not quite as long as ours. So I, I did feel kind of weird at times. So the older folks that were sitting off in the corners away from me, I wonder if they were judging me at one point. <laughs> How in time. far removed are you? Exactly. <laughs> Grade A number one right here, man. The white skin is the other white meat. Yes. So. yes. It's been a while since we've had a white skin. <laughs> but it was a little unnerving, but it, it was part of their culture. Um, it's a very warf- uh, warfare and very tribal nation. So to conquer the village, you you eat the people you conquered because you need to gain their power, which that never really made any sense to me, though. Because if I've beaten you, how much power do you really have? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that's already been stripped away. Yeah, there exactly. Yeah, that's but that's they, a good question. They were well, I guess it does go back to, uh, you know, tribal hunting. Um, you know, you kill a deer and you take its heart, you know, and, and you see in the, in the movies and stuff and, you know, they just take this raw heart still beating mm-hmm. and take a big bite out of it. You know, again, Hollywood. Oh, of course. But it's Hollywood's based on reality. So did you see any signs of cannibalism? You know, like human bones, skulls. I mean, obviously it had been there not too long ago. Yeah, it wasn't too far removed. I, I did. And some of the, a couple of the villages, not even just Yeva. Um, Yeva is just easy to remember because of, like I said, the airstrip was on the side of a mountain and it was scary as I'll get out taking off from that place. Landing wasn't so bad. Taking off was scary. Um, but no, there were still, you could still see uh, human skulls. We're still decorating some of the, some of the huts. And, um, in a lot of the villages, the men were separated from the women. Not everybody had, you know, not every family owned huts. It's hard to say who that skull belonged to as far as who actually owned it. Right. Owned it prior to that either. But, <laughs> but uh, it, it, so it made you question things. It really did. Um, and again, they would still, they're still practicing their various tribal religions and things like that. So they're still using what they can left over. Uh, you know, they're kind of like the voodoo and the hoodoo stuff. They're still using bones to try to cast the spells and try mm-hmm. to, to do the curse and stuff like that. Well, they're still using human. It may not be the, you know, may not be the freshest human. That might've been one <laughs> from mom and dad's generation, yep. but they still had the bones that were there. So you, you, you question things. You, you don't go walking off into the jungle at night by yourself. Now, again, I think we're doing an excellent, you're doing an excellent job of painting the picture here for mm-hmm. our listeners, but. You had mentioned an airstrip built on the side of a mountain and, and a larger plane that yeah, maybe that was, didn't have success. That was that was at Yeva, yes. Um, my father-in-law being a bush pilot there, he built dozens and dozens of airstrips to get to places because there's just no roads. It's either footpath or fly in. You're just not going to just you know, jump in uh, jump in your Chevy pickup and drive in. Um, but yeah, back to that Yeva, this was on the side of a mountain. This is a six, seven foot thousand, uh, seven, yeah, six to seven thousand foot mountain. 
with the airstrip carved directly on the side of it. And it was really interesting. It was flying in to see it because you have to circle the mountain because you got to make sure you get the winds are right because you got the winds are circling. So that adjusts the plane and stuff. So I got to see a lot of the area and to see the footpaths coming from that village down to the bottom of the mountain. Just little little traces of like an ant trail. It was because <laughs> they've been traveling that for generations. It was the same one, so it was completely worn out. So we could see that all the way down into the uh, the lower canopy, and then it would just disappear. Because so yeah, uh, Yeva was one of the places where he helped build, and he did as good as he could do with what he got. <laughs> There's only so much you can do on right. the side of a mountain. So the airstrip itself was just long enough to be able to land, and of course, you don't need as much airstrip when you're taking off because you're you run out of ground, you just give it more throttle and pull up. Well, one of the Australians didn't quite make that trip very well, and uh, he ran out of ground, and he went over the side. And that had, that plane is probably still there on the side of that mountain, and there were no survivors. So, And when you when you told us that story, I just, I mean, I envisioned, again, going back to the Hollywood, yeah. but, you know, here's this old dilapidated plane kind of crashed in the jungle, and, mm-hmm. I mean, very legit. Oh, yeah. So Well... And speaking of which, uh, speaking about planes, we didn't actually mention this up now. In our flights and different, different travels, we had the opportunity. Of course, I could see everything. I, I got to I got to fly a plane and get to look at all this stuff, and it was amazing. Um, saw a downed B-17 bomber mm. from World War II. Wow. So my father and I, we decided, you know what? We're going to go look at this plane. So we did another one of those dumb treks through the jungle, through the Kunai grass. I'd be right the there with you. I'd oh, have amazing. to. I'd have to. And yeah, that plane had been there, you know, since 1944, because uh, the Morobi province is where the Allies actually held off some of the Japanese uh, during World War II. Uh, on our property, we actually had still foxholes and trenches dug. So I actually was able to go through some of that, feel the history and just look. And I, from where I was at, I could see the entire valley. There, I had a metal detector given to me and I found pieces of bayonets and brass cartridges and lantern pieces and all that. I mean, so it was very legit. So anyway, we got to go to this uh, plane and we, that was several hours walk through the jungle. Got to go to the plane, and this it was a Royal Australian Air Force plane, and I got to stand on the wing. And most of that thing had been stripped out. There wasn't much that could be. So it wasn't like hung up in a tree. No, it was, it was, it was down, down on, the ground. on the ground. Yeah, and it had been there. You could see the overgrowth was there. Parts the of jungle the, had started reclaiming it. It is. It's exactly right, <laughs> straight out of a movie. And uh, Now, did I, you get any pictures? I know you said, obviously, uh, cameras pictures. were pretty hard. I had pictures but... from the air. I didn't have anything up front. So what I thought I would do, because I'm super smart about this, I'm going to get a souvenir. <laughs> Of course. I have to get a souvenir. And I wanted to get a gauge. And there was one of the gauges that was actually marked. It was made in Oklahoma City. Wow. And being from Oklahoma and now seeing a World War II plane for the Royal Australian Air Force, I'm like, I have to get this. Couldn't get it out. (laughs) Didn't take a flathead screwdriver, you know, something like that. Yeah, you never have the tools you need. (laughs) Never have the tools you need. But I found something that was really interesting. And it looked like almost like a soup can. I was like, this is cool. I got to figure out what this is. It was a little rusted, a little dark. There was a little hole on the end. It just, something wasn't right. So I threw in my backpack, again, taking the two to three hour march through the jungle. And then I don't know how many hours in the car ride, took it back. And I'm looking at this thing. This is great. And there was another missionary that came over there who's a big, huge historian, looked at it and told me immediately to get out of the house and go toss it. Uh, He looked very concerned. He turned white as a ghost. Yeah, it was a hand grenade. A grenade. Oh. It was a Japanese hand grenade. (laughs) So the You'd been better with the gauge. I would have been (laughs) better. So the the hole that was in the end was actually where the handle would have went. Oh. So you think of the German-style World War II hand grenades where they have the stick that goes into it. Yeah. Well, the Japanese did something similar. Well, that wood had rotted away after, you know, 50, 60 years. And here we a are. A little unstable. And I marched wow. this stupid thing through the jungle for two <laughs> or three hours and then took the bumpiest car ride you could possibly take <laughs> with this thing sitting in my lap. I tossed it in the jungle and I'm really hoping some, some finds it because it was bad. Wow. That was, that was a little unnerving. <laughs> so, 
But again, the, the travel like that, we got to do a lot. I got to go to a bunch of villages. And, and we were there for a purpose. We were there to, you know, to teach and spread the gospel. And, and like I said, not everybody was accepting. One of the, you know, growing up in, in, in Sunday school and going to vacation Bible school and stuff, you, you hear the stories and, and talking about demon possession and, and seeing those types. And to have actually seen that in the, most natu- in the most natural and raw setting possible. I saw a lady there. Um, she was, I don't know, maybe four foot 11, four ten. Little, little, little thing. People in New Guinea are they're smaller people. They're pygmies. Yeah. A lot mm-hmm. of them are. I'm five foot eight. I felt like I was pretty tall for most of the time, <laughs> so I was feeling pretty good about myself. But there, there was a group of people that was around this woman, and she was lashing out and and striking at them. And I watched her carry a guy that was not a traditional New Guinean, not a traditional pygmy, but he he probably weighed 180, 200 pounds. She carried him on his back, lashing and foaming at mouth, and she was speaking. And by this time, I was fluent in the language, and I didn't understand a flippant thing she was saying. Foaming at the mouth, eyes just dilated beyond all possible dilation. Just didn't even think that was possible. And foaming at the mouth, saying words I'd never heard before. And she looked at me when I walked up to her, because again, I stand out as the white guy, the white skin. Uh, she looked at me and dropped her voice. Her voice was easily two octaves lower than mine. And she might have been a 17, 18-year-old girl. And yeah, she was a demon that was sent there to go and to attack the church. And so with a group of people that I found out uh, while standing there, that was the church trying to keep her away because she was there to destroy the church and destroy everybody in it. So I had the opportunity to have a discussion with this demon because uh, I wasn't, I wasn't talking to her. There's right. no way I was talking to her. Right. There's no possible way. Um, and you're immediately like, I'm not sure my contract uh, yeah. portrayed what I signed up I, for I, here. I, I really was not comfortable with what I was yeah. doing at that point in time. Um, I was a little in over my head. I mean, I, I was I was well well versed, well you know bounded in what I believed and what I think is right and and the Bible and what. But this was straight out of the Bible. Jesus dealing with now, this isn't reading demonic. about it. This is no. This is a close yeah, and personal. This, yeah. is, this is a woman that could a reach out level. and touch me, and I was afraid she was going to. I've never seen anybody so messed over. Uh, I've been a police officer, like I said earlier, uh, for quite a few, you know, quite a few years now, and I've seen my fair share of uh, drug addicts and things of that nature. This was not drugs. Didn't compare. Not even close. Not even close. Wow. Um, she was filled with rage, and it took everything that three three grown men to do to carry her away, and they went and literally had to tie her down because there was nothing else she could do. So they're not, yeah, they're not using so, little. So- if you can, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there wasn't uh, an exorcism or anything like that. You no. just carry her way outside of the just, town. Just get her, or they just, just took her out. Yeah. Just remove her. And, and removed her for the area. Because a lot of the people they don't understand, they don't understand is unless they're traditionalists, they wouldn't know that that was part of the demonic activity. Now you get into some of the villages, like I said, uh, in the middle of nowhere, they knew exactly what that was. A lot of people didn't know because they're a little bit removed from it. Now with that, uh, well, that young lady, did you get an opportunity to interact with her when she wasn't under that influence? No, I never saw her again. I never saw her again from that day, from that day on. And when I you walked in, this was already going on. It had started, yeah. It had, it started prior to me being there, so I I wasn't sure what was going on. I mean, it's not uncommon, and we even see it here in the states. People go into a church and they'll raise six kinds of hell, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And most of them are homeless or they're mentally deranged or something like that. Okay, well, that's, that happens outside the, outside the States as well. And that's what I thought it was dealing with. I thought it was somebody that was just, you know, get out of my town type situation. We don't yeah. want you here. No, she really wanted us out of the town, off the earth, and straight to heaven. Wow. Or in her mind, hell, wherever. But she was, she was the strongest I've ever seen. I, I couldn't believe it hmm. to this day. Unbelievable. If you've seen it in a movie that, that 
you know, the demonic possession, that's exactly what it looked like. That was a very true representation of it. Pretty scary stuff. It is. Very scary. I have a hard time. I do to this day, like I mentioned Pet Cemetery. I can't watch that movie because I've seen the dog. I can't watch anything that has any sort of demon possession because I've seen it. Now, Hollywood does a pretty decent job portraying how it is. Wow. So, good times. <laughs> Welcome never, to New Guinea. Never <laughs> a dull moment. This is your travel brochure for oh, New Guinea. Man, I'm telling you, AAA didn't help me at all. <laughs> So you said you stayed there for right at a year? Was we were there for a year. Yeah. Correct. Do you feel things calmed down, at least in the area that you were assigned to there on the campus? Or was it about the same as far as that type of stuff? Or did it get better? Did it get worse? Was it the same? I think it would say the same. I think it would be safe to say it would be the same. Because, um, yeah. I mean, literally, you said 8 million people? 8 million people in the country total. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, your group's there trying to do the right. good, try to spread the gospel, but... I mean, literally, you're you're on a small island, if you will, surrounded by mm-hmm. millions of people, many of which who don't take kindly no. to, to change no. or a white skin, white especially skin. coming exactly. to their country, and uh, that that alone is is pretty scary. I mean, to put yourself out there. So you know, kudos to you well, and the missionary you. team, sure. and you know, trying to make a difference. But I mean, literally. They're trying to kill you. Yeah. And the the jungle's trying to kill you. The animals are trying to kill you. Everything's trying to kill you. 70% survival is really true it was. So I just want to say, Jason, thank you for for joining us on our podcast. I think it's some very interesting stories there. It sounded like it was quite an experience that a lot of us will never get to to even come close to. So, And, you know, when Bill and I started this podcast, uh, it's literally in some of our lyrics, you know, it's the art of the storyteller. Mm -hmm. And, uh you give us some good stories today oh, um, and it's, it's very hard to find the stories directly from the source. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody can go online, Google search and, you know, find information. But, um, you know, when we started the podcast, this is, this is exactly what we wanted to do is to mm-hmm. try to bring in things that other people, yeah. you know, wouldn't yeah. experience, couldn't experience for whatever different reasons. But, uh, um, I think this is kind of a wrap uh, for our tourist uh, season in New Guinea special. <laughs> yeah. uh, again, thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, we hope all of our listeners uh, have enjoyed this, and this is yet another example of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'd like to give a shout-out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love. 
but we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.